This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. multi-year agreement with NBC, uh, you is on the Peacock service. To my knowledge, I don't think there's uh, any really big deal that's been announced ever since the COVID uh, stuff began. Um, so I really think that's pretty extraordinary on their part and definitely on our part as well. Um, and again, we this, this agreement is really awesome for our uh, WB uh, fans, for our uh, WB universe as they call it. Looking ahead to 2021, uh, we expect to continue to manage the challenges of the COVID environment, uh, and it, it continues on. We are the most flexible, adaptable media company in the world. We can turn something around as far as a lot of it in six weeks. We don't believe that we've lost eyeballs. We believe eyeballs tend to shift from linear to digital platforms. We believe with the continued great in-ring product that the eyeballs are continuing to grow and will result in more linear eyeballs. As well as our first official beer partnership with Constellation Brands focusing on Victoria, Corona, and Modelo. In fact, if you were watching the Royal Rumble on Sunday night, you would have seen WWE superstar Rey Mysterio, a lucha legend, wearing the Victoria brand on his mask. Victoria is an iconic beer from Mexico with a deep connection to Mexican heritage. And just like Ray, as you see there, Victoria is proudly Mexican. WWE is proud to welcome Victoria beer. followers on Instagram in Spanish about how proud he was to partner with a brand as authentic to the Latino fan base as Victoria. Forbes, Complex, and Sports Illustrated were just a few of the outlets that highlighted this integration. Everybody and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, February 7th, 2021. And today is not just a big day because we have to talk about and unpack and analyze a WWE quarterly earnings report. But today is an annual earnings report to look back on. This is the podcast of record in the world of professional wrestling business. And in the annals of time, years and decades from now, when generations reflect and ask themselves, what, what happened in the world of WWE business in the strange year of 2020? What happened in a year that will be remembered for its audience-less events, its pandemic, its high cable news viewership, when our grandchildren and great-grandchildren dig through the archives in search of of the lessons of history they will naturally reach for this episode of WrestleNomics Radio. So today, we reflect on the eyeballs for not only today's listeners, but for tomorrow's listeners as well. But first... (laughs) 
But first, let's talk about linear eyeballs. WWE Monday Night Raw on Monday on the USA Network was watched by 1.9 million sets of eyeballs. Very normal performance for what Raw has been doing lately. But Raw on Monday on cable swept the top 150. In fact, Raw in the first, second, third hour occupied slots number one, two, and three on cable for the entire day. This was the post-Royal Rumble episode of Raw, up about 3% compared to the four weeks prior. Last year's post-Royal Rumble episode of Raw, only up about 1%. But in the years between 2015 and 2019, Raw was up anywhere between 11% and 17% compared to the prior four weeks. And I'm using a median there, so that should take care of any big skews. But maybe the post-pay-per-view bump is not as much of a bump as it once was, but we will continue to watch in pay-per-views to come to see how Raw does on the Monday after. Only the hardcores are left. Well, I think it's mainly the WWE universe that remains. But again, Raw nonetheless ranking in the top three spots for each of its three hours in the key demo of 18 to 49. Meanwhile, on Wednesday... AEW Dynamite ranked in number three on the day on cable in 18 to 49. 844,000 viewers overall, 414,000 of those viewers in the key demo. Compare that to Raw's 748, almost doubling AEW in the key demo. But AEW in at number three on TNT with WWE NXT coming in at 51st in the key demo on USA Network. 610,000 viewers, just under 200,000 viewers in the 18 to 49 demographic. So AEW in the key demo, doubling NXT, but Raw doubling AEW Dynamite. No new SmackDown information in as of my recording of this, but uh, last week, January 29th, SmackDown on Fox, on the broadcast network of Fox, doing 2.3 million viewers overall, almost 800,000 in the demo. Meanwhile, Impact on Axis on Tuesday nights, this Tuesday drawing an audience of 173,000 viewers and a .05 rating in the demo, good for about somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 viewers, but coming in ranked at number 125, a fraction of any of the other four wrestling programs. Nonetheless, 173,000 viewers is a pretty good number for Impact, which averaged 161,000 in January, or just go back to November where Impact was averaging 135,000, and again, this week up to 173,000, as Impact Wrestling continues to cooperate and interact with some AEW talent. And since we're about to talk about the full year that was 2020 for WWE in particular, uh, let's talk about, real quickly, in this viewership update, what the metrics are that probably matter the most to speculating about future TV rights value. So one of those that we'll talk about first is P18 to 49 rank. And let's just review what the median rank was for each of the four programs. We won't go through impact because impact did not rank uh, or we don't know where it ranked for much of 2020. But we do for AEW, NXT, Raw, and SmackDown. Well, we don't know SmackDown, but I'll explain in a moment. The median rank for Raw in 2020, 
in P18 to 49, the only, only thing that matters in your life, P18 to 49, Raw ranked fifth for median. Now, in years prior, it had done, I've got, uh, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five. The five years prior, it ranked on a median basis, number four. And in 2020, it ranked five. And maybe you could attribute that dropping of one slot to the increase in cable viewership that really dominated the even the P18 to 49 ranks in 2020, not just the P50 plus and total viewership. Uh, but that is probably, in fact, I know it is, we should think of that as one number lower. So really it's instead of four for those prior years in a row, it's really three for 2020. It's really four rather than five because Raw is reported in three lines rather than one because of its three hours. But anyway, Raw is highly ranked. And that is a mantra that I've said numerous times here on WrestleMomics Radio. And as long as Raw is highly ranked, I expect it to continue to drive a lot of TV rights value going forward. So, AEW Dynamite, median rank of number nine throughout the year of 2020. So again, Raw, probably four, really five, but you could essentially think of Raw as four. AEW on its night. Again, this is only on its particular day. AEW, median rank on Wednesday, ninth. Uh, NXT, also on Wednesday, median rank of 37. I've not tracked where uh, SmackDown falls in this, but SmackDown has even higher viewership than Raw. Of course, it's benefited by being on the Fox Broadcast Network, which is in more homes. And maybe there's even some help from cross-promotion from Fox, with Fox's high profile on broadcast television. But I just want to review that when we talk about how, yes, Raw's viewership has dropped tremendously, and it has dropped in the year of 2020, and, and in the year of 2019, it has dropped harder than the landscape of television overall. Nonetheless, there's enough of a cushion there for Raw to remain in the top five among all other cable programs that are airing on Monday. And of course, Monday for at least four months out of the year is a really tough night when you're going against Monday Night Football. And and the highly ranked programs are what's going to continue to hold the bundle together to justify growing media rights fees and the most significant TV ad dollars as well. So I just want to point that out and temper some potential criticism or cynicism before we dive right in and talk about linear, digital, and Rey Mysterio's, perhaps, eyeballs. By the way, follow along with today's notes at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. The notes are there for all $5 subscribers right now. You can look at this, read them as you listen along. Okay, sorry, just had to insert that as you were. As we review Q4 and the full year of 2020 for World Wrestling Entertainment, Inc., which, of course, trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, David, I usually don't give you an enigma here, Uh, but this happens very rarely. Uh, There are two co-presidents of WWE. Remember, Vince McMahon runs is the CEO. George Barrios and Michelle Wilson. I've had George Barrios on a couple of times. WWE, an unbelievable streaming product. They were very early, uh, very early. a subscriber-based streaming product. Took a little while to get traction. Then when it did, it Boom. took off. And so we just learned that they're both leaving effective immediately. 
Uh, and uh, McMahon says the change was necessary as we have different views on how best to achieve our strategic priorities moving forward. That Barrios is the face of the company. We have no explanation of why they're leaving. So the analysts are freaking out. They're freaking out. No one knows what to say or do. Uh, and so this is what happens when you say nothing and just get rid of people. We don't know. So no one's coming in. No one's supporting the stock. We just got a downgrade, very logical downgrade uh, by uh, Morgan Stanley uh, saying, listen, there's a vacuum in senior management. They, they can't figure out sudden and, f- and fairly, unfa- fairly unexplained. No one can figure out what's happening. I, that's, I haven't seen this happen in a long time. We don't know. So if you want to wade in, fine. But to me, it sounds like something's very wrong. Very wrong with a company that was doing quite well. Yeah. Well, it's uh, losing a quarter of its value right now. I have no explanation for it. So I just put it out there. I'd love to be able to say this is an opportunity. But this is, this is about as opaque as it gets. And that was the mood about one year ago, January 30th, 2020. That clip from CNBC with Jim Cramer and another anchor where they are lamenting the press release that had just come out announcing management transition as former co-presidents now. George Berrios and Michelle Wilson were leaving WWE. The stock, as you can tell, uh, tumbled as a result, falling from upwards of $60 down to well under 50 within a few days. Of course, the stock price still has not quite reached where it was just before the exit of Berrios and Wilson, although there's been a nice run-up. Uh, since late October. And certainly there's some been there's been some activity in recent days. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the big story on the overarching news of, of WWE business here is that WWE officially now has reported its most profitable year ever was 2020. Net income for 2020, $132 million, a record breaking the record set in 2018 of $100 million in net income. That is nearly twice uh, the the inflation-adjusted net income of fiscal year 1999 and fiscal year 2000, when in modern U.S. dollars, WWE generated 84 and $86 million, respectively, in those peak years of the Attitude Era in terms of net income. And again, this year, $132 million. In a year where WWE did not sell any tickets since the middle of March, and in an era where WWE has benefited greatly from the multiplication in the values of its TV rights fees. In terms of revenue, another record annual revenue for 2020, $997 in revenue, edging out last year of $960 million in revenue. Again, a all-time company record, even when you adjust for inflation. So we learned a lot on this call. Uh, we've got some discussion about Peacock, the new deal with NBC Universal. Peacock, of course, we got our latest chapter, latest installment in the TV ratings are fine conversation. Uh, we got a lot of talk about the outlook of the core content, international stories, expenses related to the Thunderdome. And in fact, it looks like the Thunderdome uh, production expenses are so high that uh, WWE is projecting not an increase or not not really a strong decrease in profitability for 2021, but they're projecting, guiding, seems to be the, the verb of choice. They're guiding a adjusted OEBA. They're guiding profitability for 2021 that is within a range that is smack dab in the middle of what they have reported for 2020. So it looks like profitability for the new year will be very similar to the profitability 
for 2020, despite contractual escalations in TV rights fees. Of course, COVID-19 is a part of the financial challenge as well. Uh, but for Q4, Q4, the average analyst's estimate was expecting uh, net income, was really expecting an earnings per share ratio of 32 cents, which basically means that uh, analysts were expecting roughly $27 million in net income for Q4, Q4, $27 million, but got, in actuality, a reported $13 million in net income for the quarter, so missing by about half in terms of profitability. That, along with, I think, some uh, some tempered uh, optimism about profitability for 2021 has, in my judgment, uh, caused the stock price to fall by 12% on Friday, as the stock price is now just under $50 at about $49 and change. So again, there was a nice run-up from late October all the way to the Peacock deal. A lot of analysts upgraded their price target, but the stock price never quite getting back to where it was at the very beginning of 2020. Nonetheless, the company's most profitable year in its history. Now, as far as big takeaways, let's go first to where Nick Khan gives us the impression in terms of uh, thinking about a story that is uh, really meaningful for the wrestling landscape and for wrestling fans. He told uh, analysts and investors listening, or really anyone, by the way, anybody can listen to this on corporate.wwe.com live, um, telling everyone that the movement of sports content from the NBC Sports Network, which is folding reportedly at the end of the year, that some of that content is going to move over to the USA Network. One would think NHL might be a part of that. NHL has a big hockey night on Wednesday. NXT airs on Wednesday. But Nick Khan, the WWE president and chief revenue officer, says that will have no effect on Raw or NXT. Okay, and then just on a separate topic, can you speak to how the shutdown of the NBC Sports Network and then the, the move of sports content over to USA potentially impacts Raw and NXT, um, you know, either in terms of scheduling or just, you know, kind of the overall role that your content has had at that network? And, you know, with NXT, would you ever kind of consider moving any of that content over to Peacock, the weekly content? We believe it has no impact uh, on us. The, uh, the departure of NBC Sports Network. Uh, I think we think what you're seeing in the cable universe is going to be further consolidation. So we, we know that the bundle has now sort of been unbundled or a little exposed. So the networks that were propped up, the not as strong cable networks that were propped up by the stronger cable networks like USA, the not as strong ones probably cease to exist across the board. So look for more content migration onto the stronger cable platforms there'll be no effect on uh, on Raw or NXT. So the wrestling wars on Wednesday night will continue for the indefinite future, according to what Nick Khan is saying there. NXT's deal with the USA Network, with NBC Universal more specifically, is set to expire in the fall. There's no discussion uh, further on that in this call. But in terms of revenue, if I've estimated the NXT deal is worth somewhere between 20 and $60 million average annual value, which is on par with the average annual value of WWE's biggest international TV deals, which I think would have a lot more interest in them if they were about to be renegotiated. Granted, the international deals with uh, other major markets like India and the UK are probably five-year deals. In the case of the UK, we know it's a five-year deal according to sportbusiness.com. They're reporting. 
<sighs> but probably five-year deals. And the NXT deal is coming to an end of a two-year deal. Not clear what the length of any future NXT deal will be worth. But if an NXT deal is worth something somewhere around $40 million average annual value, that would seem to mean a lot to WWE's business. But anyway, on the subject of uh, NXT moving away from Wednesday night or away from the USA Network, that sounds like it's not happening. We'll be interested to see, though, if sometime before the fall we get a press release announcing that NXT's deal with uh, NBC Universal to be on the USA Network has been renewed. I would expect that it's at some point in the months leading up to September of this year. But NXT not backing down, not backing away from Wednesday night where it goes head-to-head with AEW Dynamite on TNT as AEW has beaten NXT in the key demo for more than a year straight and in the total audience for almost every week uh, since the fall. There's a lot of back and forth between NXT and AEW throughout the spring and summer in terms of total audience. The last time NXT beat AEW in total audience was the Halloween Havoc episode of NXT on October 28th. So I imagine Nick Khan has gotten some reassurance from people at NBC Universal that whatever sports content is going to switch over from NBC Sports Network to USA Network is not going to interfere with NXT and certainly not Raw. And um, I, I take him at his word for that. I don't think he's saying that on an investor's call with a lot of confidence and reassurance from NBC Universal on that subject. And uh, and I, I do think it, it is in the economic interests of WWE and NBC Universal to continue to uh, compete head-to-head with AEW and push their ratings down as far as they can to avoid AEW getting too close in certain in, in any viewership metrics to WWE Raw so that it protects the for WWE's case, so that it protects the media rights value of their programming. And in NBC Universal's case, so it protects the brand strength, the popularity of WWE in the face of new competition. And next among the more accessible stories coming out of the earnings call, if you've been following WWE earnings calls for the last really year or two, you know that there's always been some questions lately about ratings and what's what's the deal with Raw and SmackDown ratings being down, especially through the pandemic where there was a significant decline in both Raw and SmackDown ratings. And I've just done some interesting research on what happened through the pandemic, why ratings were down, who left in terms of the viewership makeup. But here's Nick Khan's response to whether or not WWE has lost eyeballs. And then my, my, my last one is for whoever wants to take it. I mean, one question I get the most from investors is, you know, how will you guys reverse ratings trends? Uh, aside from bands coming back hopefully later this year, which should uh, help boost ratings, uh, what else is the company doing to enhance the product and drive viewers back to Raw and SmackDown? So a couple things. Curry, this is Nick again. Um, we don't believe that we've lost eyeballs. We believe eyeballs tend to shift from linear to digital platforms. So if you look at even our Facebook numbers, which are significantly up the last six months or so, including the revenue against those numbers, we think the eyeballs are there. Like I said, we're always looking to grow ratings. So now that we're coming out of a competitive presidential race that a lot of people were focused on, we're still all in the midst of a virus that a lot of people are focused on. We believe with the continued great in-ring product 
that the eyeballs are continuing to grow and will result in more linear eyeballs as some of the other stuff that I just mentioned passes. So we feel good about our position and we think our network partners do as well. So cynical wrestling punditry would have you believe that uh, networks must not be happy with the ratings that Raw and SmackDown are getting. And I highly doubt that. I, I have a lot of trouble believing that NBC Universal and Fox aren't pretty happy with how Raw and SmackDown are doing. Raw is highly ranked in the key demo. SmackDown does very well in the key demo. NXT might be another story, but it doesn't look, look, look like anybody's unhappy enough with NXT to move it out of Wednesday night. Again, when you see programs like Raw start to fall out of the top five and get into the bottom half of the top ten on a regular basis or fall out of the top ten on a regular basis, then sound the alarm that hasn't happened yet. Now, with that said, this narrative that we haven't really lost viewership, it's just moved from watching on linear, that is traditional TV, to watching through other means, digital means, social media means, YouTube, whatever it may be. There's some credibility, there's some data to support that argument that I can see publicly. Before I go forward and explain how that's true, yes, it needs to be pointed out that per viewer or per viewer hour, the difference in value for somebody watching W programming on linear TV, traditional TV, versus somebody watching W programming through the internet has a massive difference in value. It's way more valuable for WWE to have lots of traditional TV viewers than digital media or social media or YouTube viewers. WWE probably makes somewhere around 20 to $30 million on YouTube every year. That's probably among the most lucrative YouTube channels that are on YouTube. Uh, that's a lot of money. But WWE is making $470 million on Raw and SmackDown in the U.S. alone on an average annual basis over the lifetime of these two contracts, just for Raw and SmackDown. Because we don't know what, with what certainty, with a lot of certainty, what NXT is generating. But again, if you watch YouTube, WWE content on YouTube, let's say for an hour, WWE probably gets about five cents for that, by my math. Five cents, a nickel. A nickel here in America. If you watch one hour of WWE content on linear TV, WWE and its business partners can justify as much as 70 cents for that hour. Again, a nickel versus 70 cents. How many, how many nickels do you need to make 70 cents? Let's do the math. 70 divided by 5 is 14. 14 times. It's 14 times more valuable for you to watch WWE content on traditional TV, cable, broadcast than it is for you to watch WWE content for the same amount of time on YouTube. And I don't know much of anything about how WWE is monetizing other platforms, but I can't imagine that they are monetizing anything quite like YouTube at this point. Now, with that said, as I think I've talked about on this program before, if you take AVOD hours that they put in the, in the KPIs, WWE publishes this data themselves. If you take those hours, and those are global, global hours, those are not U.S. hours. We don't know what the U.S. hours are, but it's probably about 30%. WWE executives in the past have said digital engagement is somewhere around 30% U.S., 70% international. So if I take that as a decent estimate, 30% of those AVOD hours are happening in the U.S., and I take all the hours of uh, WWE programming for Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, and I stack all that time together, and we do see the declines in, in Raw, SmackDown over time, 
NXT has been part of this party for a shorter amount of time, but we do see an overall decline over time in, in, in linear TV viewing. But if we stack the Avon viewing on top of it, it makes the trend pretty flat because Avod viewing has grown over time. And while Avod viewing, uh, in terms of time for WWE, has grown, the monetization of that time hasn't really grown much at all. Again, five cents for an hour on digital social, 70 cents for an hour on linear TV. So Nick Khan says, we haven't lost eyeballs. They're just digital eyeballs now, more so than they are linear eyeballs. But linear eyeballs are 14, somewhere in the neighborhood, this is an estimate, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 times, a dozen times more valuable than a digital eyeball. Now, let's talk about something else, something that is hard to deny about trends in WTV viewership, something that can't be explained away by digital eyeballs. Something very significant happened in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. So I want to talk about the P18 to 34 demographic, henceforth, Young adults, young adults accounted for between, eh, let's see, 14, 13, 16, 15% of the Raw and SmackDown audiences. Okay, about 15% young adults are watching your your program through linear TV for AEW at that time, about the same, 17, 15, 16% pre-pandemic. This is January, February, March. NXT, about the same, 15, 14, 14%. January, February, March of 2020. Everybody's got about the same portion of their audience in the young adult demographic. Everybody's pretty much equal, all four of those programs. Then the pandemic happens. Crowds go away. W goes to the Performance Center. AEW moves around to various locations with also no audience. Everybody's got no audience. And what happened is the raw audience, especially the young adult raw audience, about... 5% of the 15% left and haven't come back as of January, 2021. They were doing 16, 15% in January, February, March. They're down to 11, 12% since the pandemic. Pretty consistent. There's a dip at the beginning of the pandemic and it's a flat line from there. There's no recovery. In the case of AEW, they had a bit of a dip through June, but rose back up to going up as high as 19%, 16%, 18%. So they've recovered with young adults. That that did decline a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic. NXT, though, sloped down at the beginning of the pandemic, and they haven't really recovered with young adults either. SmackDown, though, SmackDown, things look better. SmackDown's young adult audience declined as well through the summer. But in August, Thunderdome appears, Roman Reigns returns. And the young adult audience grows a little bit to where in, in by November and December, it's back up to 13%. So finally, what happened here? The young adult audience of Raw and of NXT declined at the beginning of the pandemic and have not recovered since. The young adult audience of AEW Dynamite and WWE SmackDown declined a little bit less and have recovered since the pandemic. And because we've got four wrestling programs here, all on major television stations, all dealing with the same COVID restrictions, I don't think there's a lot of strong external doubt you can put on this about things that that one normally brings up when one explains away television ratings declines. All four of these programs are living in a world where linear TV viewing 
is on the decline. All four of these wrestling programs are living in a world where people are consuming their media more so through digital means. Yet two of these programs had a decline from which they have not recovered, and two of these programs have not. What's that about? Well, maybe it's the quality of the content. And by the way, it's not as if the audience for these programs grew in some other age demographic that is pushing the percentage down. Because guess which age demo is absorbing the decrease from younger age demos? You guessed it, it's professional wrestling's favorite age demographic, people over the age of 50. And that's just in terms of percent. Don't worry, P50 Plus has been nice and steady throughout 2020. Not growing, but not strongly declining either. And I guess, what can you say if you're in that position that Nick Khan is in? From a product type position, you're in a great position. You've got, you're selling live sports content, which is multiplying in value over time. If you're Nick Khan, you're in a great position to maximize that multiplying value. It's just that the specific product that you've got, while sufficiently popular to, at least for now, continue to exploit those multiplying values, this is not a good product, at least in Raw. SmackDown, this, this does deviate from my usual narrative that it's the Vince-controlled programs Raw and SmackDown that are declining in popularity and NXT and AEW, which are not controlled by the creative uh, power of Vince McMahon, are, are doing better. Um, here we see, at least in that comparison, concerning P18 to 49, uh, NXT declining as well. But nonetheless, all under the WWE brand. And you've got a wrestling product that's not really winning over many new fans or creating many high-profile new stars who can attract new fans. And the central problem causing that is a head of creative. Who is the CEO that you're sitting next to or maybe sitting next to? Vince McMahon, by the way, uh, giving an opening statement at the beginning of this conference call, but not participating in Q&A. Even when Needham's Laura Martin directly addressed Vince McMahon, as she always does, it was still Nick Khan who answered the question. But ultimately, at least from a, a public-facing point of view, what I'm hearing there, if you're an investor, or God forbid a wrestling fan, what I'm hearing there is that nothing's going to change content-wise. We think we're doing a good job. Great in-ring product. And in fact, we identify no problem whatsoever. But another important story that I want to get to is the Thunderdome looks like it's quite expensive. WCFO Christina Salem outlined that there is an increase in production costs of 25% per episode relative to what? Well, let's listen to her answer on the topic and then try to unpack it from there. You mentioned the 15 to 20% impact to EBITDA from uh, the pandemic. I was wondering if you could maybe help us splice that a little bit in terms of how that's comprised, what percent or what portion of that is related to production costs versus uh, the other impact you mentioned, which is the loss of ticket sales and merchandise. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, we haven't broken it down uh, publicly with regard to percentage impacts, but what we have said is, you know, we expect there to be a significant year-over-year -year inc uh, increase in WWE's expense base due to continued higher expenses um, associated with the production of Raw and SmackDown. 
um, at uh, at Tropicana or uh, any any other facility like that post. Um, we have said that um, our TV production expense is up 25% per episode. Um, and we also pointed out that um, there's also an impact of the return of employees from furlough, um, which won't start to be a year-over-year -year comparison really until the second quarter of, of 2021. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, the, the biggest X factor in our minds is the return um, of live, ticketed live events and the pace at which they ramp. As Vince talked about in his opening remarks, what's the capacity restriction going to be? How many um, stadiums are available to, uh, to us across the United States in any given moment? Um, are we allowed to sell merchandise? A lot of discussion, too, by the way, about how Vince gave the opening statement but then did not participate in Q&A, even when uh, Needham analyst Laura Martin, uh, as she usually does, asked a question specifically to Vince. Uh, Nikon took that question. But uh, some deep analysis here. I feel like I can hear the Darth Vader-like breathing of the CEO uh, somewhere in the background. And things of that nature during some of these responses, like the one we just heard. Highly speculative on my part. In other words, maybe he didn't just uh, give the opening statement and then leave the room. Anyway, production expenses, which we can get some look at in the uh, SEC filings. So for... 2020, we get an annual report instead of a quarterly report. But if we subtract the information in the quarterly reports from the information in the annual report, we can deduce a Q4 set of data points. Oh, yes. And I've put that in an Excel spreadsheet. So what we have for Q4 2020, media operating expenses, $125 million. How does that compare to other quarters? Well, in a complicated way, $125 million in operating expenses compared to, it's, it's hard to know what is a great comparison here because last quarter included $18 million in production incentives. Nonetheless, $89 million, 89.7, let's call that 90. Let's add 808 or 18 to that. And then we get to, um, let's see, $108 million. So $108 million probably last quarter with, with, uh, without the production incentives compared to 125 this quarter. However, that quarter, Q3, didn't contain an entire quarter of Thunderdome and contained none of the uh, Capital Wrestling Center production. But $125 million in Q4, how does that compare to a pre-COVID quarter? Again, complicated to do this comparison because a lot of the quarters in the past include either a WrestleMania, highly expensive event, uh, a Saudi Arabia event, highly expensive or even a Royal Rumble Stadium event. So hard to find a great comparison here. And then the Q3s, I think, across the board include production incentives. So, and then, and that it looks to be the case for every quarter in 2019, every quarter is either a Q3 or a quarter that contained a Saudi Arabia event, a WrestleMania event, or a Stadium Rumble. We can go back to Q1 2018. Of course, we're going further back in time, probably when things are getting marginally less expensive in terms of production, but $80 million in Q1 2018, a quarter that did not contain any stadium events, $80 million, again, compared to this quarter of $125 million. If we look at the Q4 of 2017, again, 
going back further in time, which is not what we want to do, but $89 million, $89 million in 2017. Again, $225 million in this quarter, which would lead me to believe that. And and, and Christina Salen basically said as much that uh, the Thunderdome, a, an average episode of TV in the Thunderdome is more expensive than an average episode of TV in the pre-COVID era. She's saying 25% more expensive. And then what makes that more clear is a comment that she made earlier in the earnings call where she said that production expenses in 2022 next year, presumably a non-COVID year, will be less than they are in this year of 2021. Another key factor to note in the WWE post-COVID business model is that while TV production costs may decline somewhat in 2022 relative to 2021, costs will likely remain higher than in 2019. This is due to the shift in 2020 to a Monday-Friday production schedule compared to a Monday-Tuesday schedule previously. Incremental costs related to this change were masked in 2020 by residency in various locations, particularly in WWE's own performance center in the early months of COVID. So what I get from what Christina Salen is saying there is that 2021 will be the most expensive among the years of 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022. This year will be the most expensive of those four years. 2022 will be less expensive than 2021 in a post-COVID world, presumably. But 2022 will be more expensive than 2019 and certainly more expensive than 2020, which included a lot of time where production was run very inexpensively in the performance center. In other words, it would seem that 2021 with the full Thunderdome and, and Capital Wrestling Center production is more expensive than running normal TV at arenas either in the future year of 2022 or in the previous non-COVID year of 2019. And while other outlets may be telling you that the Thunderdome was not nearly as expensive as some had surmised, if you've been listening to WrestleNautics Radio, you are not as surprised about this revelation. What I did miss in Q3 was the anticipation of the $18 million in production incentives that made production expenses, well, media expenses, much lower than they would have been otherwise. Other details here of interest, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the Peacock deal. And uh, like in that last comment excerpt from Christina Salen, she also commented that the greatest increase in revenue related to Peacock will be in 2021. And she's giving a lot of sort of advice here to people who are making estimates, mainly analysts, about uh, what WWE's financial picture will look like. And she says that 2021 will be the biggest year in the Peacock deal from an incremental revenue and adjusted OEDA perspective. Basically, 2021 will be the biggest year for the Peacock deal in terms of the increase of revenue over previous trends and and in terms of not just revenue, but profitability adjusted OEBDA as well. She went on to say, we have to value the subscribers that we're transferring over and we have to value any IP that we're transferring over, which is a very 
interesting but opaque statement. I, is there some sort of additional payment that NBC Universal is making at the beginning of this deal related to the expense of the migration of users, of, of, of subscribers? Or is there some sort of upfront uh, payment, something like a sign-on bonus? Anyway, when you sit down and, and do your Excel spreadsheet and estimate the the profitability or the revenue uh, achieved by WWE in Q1, uh, that's something to keep in mind there. Even though one would think that this is a, uh, you know, we know that this is a five-year deal, according to the Wall Street Journal and Sports Business Journal, uh, we would assume that it's a, a guaranteed escalating set of payments, payments that will increase in each year. However, there's Christina Salen saying that 2021 will be the biggest year in the Peacock deal. And analyst Ben Swineburn from Morgan Stanley, in his analysis following this earnings report, noted that, quote, in addition, there are transition costs from the network to Peacock being incurred in 2021, which we estimate to be 10 to $15 million, while the Peacock revenues will step down in 2022 from 2021. So there's, there's Ben Swinburne, 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 Ben Swinburne's reading of that statement from WWE. And additionally, in terms of estimating what the difference is in finances for having the Peacock deal in place of 1.1 million U.S. subscribers, uh, Salem also took a question from Lightshed's Brandon Ross saying that there will be no lost revenue related to Peacock other than the sub-revenue. So the thought is that there might be some lost advertising revenue that Peacock slash NBC Universal would take a cut of uh, the advertising that I think appears in the content for WWE, including things like uh, Snickers, the official sponsor of WrestleMania, and maybe other ads that run on the content of the W Network programming, like the pay-per-views. But Salen addressed that and said, no, there would be no lost revenue related to Peacock other than subscriber revenue. And another story coming out of the Peacock deal is looking at how much WWE and NBC Universal are going to cooperate toward promoting the events that are going to be streamed live on Peacock, which we have historically always called the pay-per-view events, the streaming events. I don't know. I don't know what we should call them now, but we'll probably continue to call them pay-per-view events. And they still will be offered on traditional pay-per-view for $60, but, uh, Nick Khan said that there's going to be more cross-promoting of WWE by NBC, like the WrestleMania announcements that were made during NBC NFL broadcasts. He said, look for pay-per-view events. Well, he didn't say pay-per-view events, but look for the events to be piggybacked onto big NBC events. So I would think that means look for when NBC has a big event, probably a sporting event. I know Sasha Banks has now some involvement already with the Daytona 500, for example. But look for when... NBC has a big sporting event or big TV event for WWE to be cross-promoted in some way or for a, an upcoming pay-per-view to be cross-promoted in some way. When you've got a big captive audience for a big uh, TV event, there may be some and you know WWE cameo being made to promote an upcoming pay-per-view event on Peacock. And Stephanie McMahon, chief brand officer, in her remarks, noted that NBCU and Peacock will allow greater access for WWE to the ad sales and marketing teams. Presumably, WWE will be enhanced in its ability to 
sell advertising associated with their programming. There's a few other smaller stories coming out of this. The India Superstar Spectacle was viewed by 20 million people across all the Sony platforms of Sony 10.1, Sony 10.3, Sony Max, and Sony Live. According to Nikon, that is five times higher than the average weekly ratings for Raw and SmackDown in India. Uh, according to the BARC rankings of the top sports programs on a weekly basis in India, still the old uh, replays of the Royal Rumble events from like 2013 most recently are more highly viewed than Raw or SmackDown. So I don't know what context to really put that in. Um, but Nikon putting over the Superstar Spectacle as a big success for in, for uh, the audience in India. Uh, and he put over the Latin American focus with Bad Bunny, who I didn't realize was such a big deal. Ba- according to Nikon, Bad Bunny was the most streamed artist in 2020 on Spotify with 8.3 billion streams. And the co-branded Bad Bunny WB merchandise on WB Shop was the hottest selling e-commerce item in the history of WB Shop, according to Nikon. And look for more of that targeting the Latin American region. Uh, Christina Salen noted that WB lost $90 million overall in revenue in the year of 2020 due to COVID. And I would think a, a big piece of that is the WrestleMania weekend. A lot of that is ticket sales, obviously. WrestleMania is a big piece of that, but ticket sales overall. Venue merchandise as well. In a normal year, or if we just look at 2019, WWE reported $126 million in live event revenue and $19 million in venue merchandise this year, only $20 million in live event revenue, again, compared to 20, $126 million in the, in the year prior, and venue merch of only $3 million this year, this year being 2020, compared to $19 million in 2019. So I can get to as much as $122 million missed out on there, but maybe live event revenue would have been lower. And WWE missed out on a Saudi Arabia, or excuse me, large-scale international event uh, this year. They did one, but would have done two. Didn't do the second one. That would have been an additional $50 million. So I would think that they lost out on something in the neighborhood of $170 million in revenue due to COVID. And maybe because of the pandemic, you had an extra... $10 $10 million in e-commerce sales. Maybe bring that down to $160 million. Nonetheless, uh, Salen also said that WrestleMania ticket availability and safety protocols, which you must talk about together, uh, will be forthcoming. So that appears to be confirmation that there will be uh, fans in attendance at WrestleMania, as, as one would expect. Um, that's why they're doing it at Raymond James Stadium. And the press release put out earlier certainly uh, made it sound like that would be the case. Uh, other ticketed live events, though, WWE doesn't anticipate happening until at the earliest, the second half of 2021. So it's not as if you should expect that there will be ticketed live events following WrestleMania immediately. WrestleMania is not the uh, beginning of the return of live events, but merely the first one until maybe it's it's safer for them to continue doing events. It'll be interesting to see what happens as far as will will uh, WWE continue to run at Tropicana Field. I think there's some... Uh, Timing issues coming up with the Rays baseball season that might cause W to have to move and find a different location. Will they find an outdoor location to run the Thunderdome at that might allow them to continue to bring fans in, sort of like AEW is doing at Daly's Place, a, a outdoor event where they can bring fans in? In the world of consumer products, WWE had a 100% increase in its sales of replica belts. W released 18 replica belts in 2020. And uh, I guess in, in the pandemic, when you're spending a lot of time at home, 
Uh, now is the time, more than ever, during these unprecedented times to walk around your house and uh, feel like a champion. So replica belts, sales doubling in 2020. Um, Nikon also announced that W has made a deal with a major sports league. He didn't say which one, but a major sports league has made a deal with WWE to do W title belts, championship title belts. Can I say championship? Championship title belts that will use that sports league's team's logos. So look for uh, major sports league's champions to be celebrating, not just with the trophy, but with WWE championship belts with the team logo, probably on the faceplate. And video game sales in 2020 were down versus the Q4 of 2019 due to the delay in the 2K console game release, which was planned. New WWE headquarters still in Stanford, Connecticut, just down the street from their current location. That will continue. They will continue setting up and moving into the new headquarters in the second half of the year. And there has not been a stock buyback program, the stock buyback program that they were doing in 2019, which they paused at the beginning of the pandemic to preserve cash resources, and which shortly after the pandemic, uh, interim CFO Frank Riddick said that they were considering resuming it. Uh, as of the end of the year, that program has not resumed. The stock buyback progr- program is basically the company using some of its free cash to buy back shares of its own stock, which would increase the value of the stock. So in addition to breaking their you know, all-time profit record for a year, uh, the, the stock buyback program uh, even being considered to be resumed points to letting you know that uh, this company is in good financial shape. And you can listen, by the way, to the full audio of the earnings conference call on the Russellnomics Patreon feed at patreon.com slash Russellnomics for all subscribers who are there for $5 a month. And uh, in the opening remarks from Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon, she crafts this wonderful narrative about WWE's brand and how Vince always taught her how to be ahead of the curve, which we'll listen to a couple of excerpts of now. One of the lessons Vince always taught me in business was to always be slightly ahead of the curve. Not so far ahead that people don't understand what you're doing, and certainly not behind. WWE was ahead of the curve with the advent of pay-per-view, bringing WrestleMania directly into people's homes. Social media allowed one-to-one connection between our superstars and our fans. And when consumers started migrating to what was then a new short-form platform called YouTube, WWE became one of YouTube's original paid content partners. When research showed our audience was five times more likely to consume online video, we cannibalized our pay-per-view business and launched the first live SVOD service of its kind, WWE Network. And now, we're ahead of the curve again. Licensing WWE Network, our most premium content, to one of America's premier streaming services, NBCU's Peacock. WWE is the perfect partner as more and more brands look to engage consumers with customized content creation and authentic influencers. When you couple that with our over 1 billion followers across digital and social platforms, as well as our broadcast, cable, and streaming partners, Fox, USA, and Peacock in the States, WWE is poised now more than ever to deliver scale, 
engagement, and reach. So I'd like to close with talking about WWE's brand, as uh, we just heard from Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon, who has done a lot, and the company has done a lot, to improve its image and its monetization with other businesses. WWE, for the last 20 years or so, has frantically tried to escape the fact that it is a professional wrestling company. Being a mere professional wrestling company, the belief seems to be kept them out of a lot of valuable business partnerships, left them with weaker access to valuable advertisers and sponsors, kept them from being able to make stronger and more lucrative business partnerships. You don't often hear the word wrestling in WWE programming, even though the word is in the name of the company. You more often hear the initials of the company, and you more often hear the activity, the athletes, don't call them wrestlers, performers, competitors, are engaged in as sports entertainment. Indeed, they don't have wrestling fans. They have the WWE Universe. The company's corporate website tells you the business is an integrated global media company. The word wrestling does not appear. They make movies, as Vince said in the 1999 documentary Beyond the Mat. Vince started WWE Studios, which on this call, Nick Khan noted that they're no longer producing films, they're licensing their content out to others. In a sense, the WWE Studios strategy had to be reconfigured. In previous years, when the segment was broken out in detail, WWE Studios was often a money-losing segment. But anyway, in trying to become something other than a wrestling company, I doubt so much because of that fact, but coinciding with that activity, WWE has improved its relationship and its perception with business partners, advertisers, television networks. We don't have numbers available to tie this to, but I would imagine WWE's advertising rates during its programming have improved in recent years. WWE has done a good job of presenting their product to business partners and potential business partners as something more digestible than the stereotype of professional wrestling that many may have in mind. You can go to community.wd.com and see all of the company's philanthropy and community outreach programs. A few years ago, WWE and NBC Universal together produced the Hero in All of Us campaign, a campaign not so much directed at fans or consumers, but a campaign directed at advertisers and other business partners to improve the image of the company, to show them that WWE wasn't pro-wrestling, violent, stupid crap, but was something magic that would give people an experience and attracts people from all different age groups and backgrounds. It puts smiles on people's faces. There's clearly been a lot of effort and time and probably a lot of money invested in improving the perception of WWE's brand. Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon probably has played an important role in that. And in the years since WWE has improved its brand perception among business partners, it has not taken care of its brand perception among fans. While the acceptance of WWE's brand among business partners has increased, the acceptance of WWE's brand among fans has decreased. Let's think about that fan base. For a long time, and 
wrestling punditry, maybe inside the industry as well. A common distinction that's been made to talk about the fan base is to talk about hardcore fans and casual fans, and maybe there's lapsed fans as well. But I think that hardcore and casual distinction is no longer as relevant as a different distinction, which is WWE fans and other wrestling fans. That is, fans who are primarily WWE fans and wrestling fans who are not necessarily primarily WWE fans. There's a core of WWE fans, you might call them the WWE Universe fans, for whom WWE is the be-all, end-all of wrestling. And those fans are a large portion of the people who are watching WWE on television. They're a large portion of people who are consuming WWE in other ways, whether that's media, merchandise, or eventually, again, someday, live events. Those fans aren't really engaging with or even highly aware of other brands of wrestling. And then there's the other core of fans who are passionate about wrestling in a more general way, who are less satisfied and excited about the WWE product, and that group of fans engage more with other non-WWE wrestling brands. That latter group has grown in portion among the total denominator of wrestling fans over time. That's evident from the emergence of other U.S. wrestling brands in the last five years or so, whether that's the increase in business, at least for a time, for Ring of Honor, for New Japan Pro Wrestling in the U.S., and finally for the launch of AEW in 2019. And in fairness to WWE, WWE has made some effort at trying to capture the different tastes of that latter group with brands like NXT. Nonetheless, WWE continues to have a young adult viewer problem. That's evident from what we talked about earlier in this program about the decline in 18 to 34 age viewers, beginning with the pandemic, and in the case of Raw, never coming back. The Net Promoter Score study that I did in late December and early January of this year, collecting more random samples from a Facebook ad and not from social media, young adult fans between 18 and 49 were somewhat less likely to recommend Raw, SmackDown, or NXT compared to people who responded to the survey who were over the age of 50 or under the age of 18. AEW Dynamite, however, showed an inverse of that pattern. People between the ages of 18 and 49 were more likely than their younger or older fellow wrestling fans to recommend AEW Dynamite to a friend. And there's a similar pattern with other non-W wrestling brands, Impact, Ring of Honor, and New Japan Pro Wrestling. That said, W's net promoter score remains positive. Uh, AEW's net promoter score is more positive, but there's clearly still a large population of fans who approve of WWE and are not about to tune out and disengage. WWE has enormous name ID. WWE's Google web search on a worldwide basis remains some eight times higher than that of AEW. In the US, WWE's Google web searches remain some five or six times higher than that of AEW. And other non-WWE wrestling brands are microscopic by comparison. WWE maintains tremendously strong name ID in the pro wrestling world, and it has strong corporate leadership and good media strategy. It has some strong uh, key executives that enhance the likelihood that WWE is going to continue to maximize 
its revenues over time. But what would it maximize its revenues even more is if it had a great core product to sell, which it does not. And progressively, I think it hasn't had a good product for many years, and that's bared out at least in the last five or so years in the form of declines in a variety of areas, including ticket sales, merchandise sales, obviously those not really comparable in 2020 because of the pandemic, network subscribers in the year of 2019 being down year over year, and Google Web Search falling precipitously since 2016. When Stephanie McMahon talks in this earnings call on Thursday about Vince saying that you should always be ahead of the curve, and that's why WWE pivoted from doing a direct-to-consumer streaming service to selling its streaming rights to NBC Universal. Um, the need to sell those streaming rights to NBC Universal would be less necessary and might not even be as profitable or as lucrative if WWE had a stronger product to sell that attracted more subscribers that might have brought in subscribers closer to the 3 or 4 million that were originally projected. Nonetheless, even if they couldn't reach those lofty goals, the W Network would be an even more valuable sale to a licensee if WWE was more popular and if the content was consumed more avidly across a greater number of fans. In many ways, WWE has been ahead of the curve in terms of its approach to media throughout the decades, with WWE's move from closed circuit to pay-per-view, from pay-per-view to streaming, from syndicated television to cable. But its content is anything but ahead of the curve today. And trends among wrestling fans, particularly those who are younger-aged adults, should be something of a warning. Not that WWE's business is going to be drastically negatively impacted next week, next month, or next year. But the company's chronic difficulty with cultivating stars, frequent reliance on older legends, many of whom do not work a full year-round schedule for WWE, that creative execution, which will continue indefinitely under the creative leadership of Vince McMahon, will likely continue to shed viewers and consumers over time, and will continue to erode on the virtual monopoly that WWE once had in the pro wrestling industry. Hopefully that's good for fans, even if there are fewer of them overall. And in the big financial picture of WWE, it's not as if in the coming years there's going to be any economic signal that will intensely pressure WWE to take a serious look at the quality of its content. If anything, in the years to come, even more of WWE's revenue is going to come from business partners rather than from wrestling fans. In 2020, an exceptional year because of the, of the pandemic, but not much different than in future years, WWE made more than half, just over half of its revenue from TV rights fees, not dependent on the particular performance of its viewership. Just 10 years ago, WWE made as much as 70 to 78% of its revenue directly from consumers in the form of pay-per-view buys or even network subscriptions later on, ticket sales, consumer product sales. But increasingly over time and increasingly in the future, WWE will get a greater majority of its revenue from business partners, whether that's from television partners, whether that's from advertising and sponsorships, whether that's now from WWE Network licensing fees or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. In 2020, 70% of 
of WWE's revenue came from business partners, only 30% directly from consumers, that is wrestling fans. In the next few years to come, I estimate that WWE will make as much as 80% of its revenue from business partners as guaranteed escalating fees with business partners, with media partners like NBC Universal, Fox, Sony, BT Sport, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia continue to contribute to a growing majority of the company's business. Further insulating, perhaps, WWE's chief decision maker from the sentiments of wrestling fans who ultimately are the foundation of the pro wrestling business. I don't see much changing in the years to come, but on a long enough timeline, this kind of creative execution I don't think is sustainable. How long can you rely on the legacy intellectual property of your superstars of the past without creating new, fresh, and young stars who could better attract young viewers? How long is it sustainable for? We may find out. We probably won't really find out anytime soon, but in the decade to come. So that's all for this time. It's been another exciting year in the world of WWE earnings reports. And I look forward to yet another in 2021. You can get the WrestleNomics full year 2020 industry report. Go to WrestleNomics.com, go to resources, click on the 2020 report there. I believe it's pinned to the top of the WrestleNomics Twitter account right now. The link is. You can get it on PayHip for $6, or you can get it by becoming a monthly supporter at $5 per month at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. It is a PDF report, 63 pages full of loads of information. First two-thirds of it are nothing but key metrics, graphs, numbers, helping you understand the industry. The closing third, analysis, insights, and opinions, written content from me. The net promoter score that I referenced is in there. Television viewership is in there. Live event data is in there. Annual trends for all this stuff. Google web search for the top companies, the top wrestling stars in the world, ranked. Again, check out the pinned tweet for the WrestleNomics account to find the PayHip link. For $6, or become a monthly supporter at $5 a month at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You can see a five-page free preview. In other business, go to WrestleNomics.com to check out all my written work, including this most recent week. We had a guest article, the first time ever there has been an outside contributor, a new contributor to WrestleNomics.com. Matthew Schroeder published an ELO 500, taking a look at if wins and losses truly matter, who would be the top 500 ranked wrestlers based on those wins and losses using something called an ELO score, which is used to rank chess players. Oh yes, only things like that will you find at WrestleNomics.com. Thanks again to John Pollock of Post Wrestling for having me on as a guest this week following the earnings report. Follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. Follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time. Hey.